All right, let's get going. A lot of work to do tonight. <clears throat> I uh, first want to thank you all for the support and texts and prayers uh, on the coming of our third child. We now have three children, three and under, uh, which makes us clinically insane. And um, it's a good thing my wife's a counselor, and I'm a pastor. It works real well. Uh, so far in the last several days, there's been moments when I've been in the corner praying, and she's been taking our kids through counseling. Um, so it's worked out pretty well so far. Um, those of you who saw the picture last week, you saw my little son Maddox has a full head of hair. I had to get out the shaving kit when he came out. He, uh, he ha- literally has more hair than I do. Um, he's a little stallion, though. We're super blessed um, by his coming. And, you know, I, I had kind of romanticized the picture of what it would be to bring Maddox home. You know, we have three now and this kind of new family of ours. And so we're leaving the hospital and, and we walk in and Avery's there, my oldest, who's nearly four. And uh, she's there with uh, grandma and, and we come in and we've got bags and uh, Maddox and, and some cupcakes that some friends brought and some balloons and all kinds of stuff. And in this like really emotional moment, I, I grab Avery, you know, and we've come home, our new family, all five of us now. And I say, Avery... You know, are you excited that your little brother's here? And, and she looked at me and kind of had that, that beautiful princess look in her face. And she said, I'm just glad you brought cupcakes. And uh, <laughs> so I was pretty encouraged by that. And um, they, don't, they don't teach you that uh, in, uh, when you're growing up, how to deal with those situations. But I have to say that I, uh, I love children. I love my kids. And they are one of the greatest reminders of the grace of God. And as I look... Uh, as I look in their eyes um, daily and family worship or just talking with them, I'm just reminded of how blessed I am to have them. And uh, so thank you all for the support. And it's, it's great to be back here tonight. And I mean that. My heart's already softened. feel like a, just a super strong spirit here tonight. And um, we have a lot of work to do. So it's going to be interesting to see how this fleshes itself out. Um, but I hope that you're ready. Um, there's something that is potentially... Um, There's something potentially that could happen tonight uh, through the text that we're going to look at, and that's what I'm praying for. And so I I first need to give some context um, for you if you haven't been joining with us. We've been studying 1 Peter, and the interesting thing about 1 Peter is he's writing to a church that is under duress. Um, The Roman emperor Nero, and and I've shared this many times here, but he he burned the city on purpose so that he could build his own kingdom, a new kingdom. And in doing so, he needed a scapegoat. He had many options, but the most, uh, the clearest option were, were the Christians. And so Nero, in 64 AD, chose the Christians to persecute. I've done some uh, research on how uh, Nero persecuted the Christians, and could I share some of that with you? At night, um, Nero would take the Christians, and he would wrap them in oil, and then he would stick them on uh, the the palace entry, like candle abras, and then he would light them as they were living to make a a note to everyone else that uh, Christianity was not going to be held in high esteem in Rome. Uh, One of his favorite practices was to kill uh, pigs and cows, and then he would wrap the Christians in the cow and the pig skin, and he wouldn't feed his dogs for a couple weeks, and he would take his, uh, all these Christians and then throw them in the pack of dogs. Um, I don't know if we get that as, we're, as we've been studying First Peter, do we? Do we understand that when he writes this letter, that's, what he, that's the kind of culture he's writing to? 
He's writing to a bunch of Christians who have been brutally abused, who the thought of death is very relevant. They have had friends of theirs that haven't just been slapped on the hand for claiming Jesus, but rather have been made a candle abra in the front of the emperor's palace. I'm humbled by that tonight. Um, and I'm, I want to confess my struggle in First Peter as we've been studying it, is I have at times found it hard to make it relevant for me because I don't feel like we struggle in, or suffer in any way, shape, or form like that. However, tonight, there is a clear, relevant picture for us. And I say that, and I'm not going to, to diminish the fact I'm not going to sell it short that right now in our world that there are Christians being killed because of their faith. So I don't want to take this passage and make it relevant while selling persecution short because we can't. In places in the world today, there are Christians being killed. And so we're not going to diminish that. But at the same time, we're going to take this text, make it very relevant for you and I so that we can better learn how to suffer in our context. Sound good? Are you ready? So open your Bibles to 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. Like I said, a lot of work to do tonight, so if you could um, put on your thinking cap, and uh, we're going to go to it here. I want to read the five verses we're going to study tonight, which is a record in First Peter, by the way. Um, we have normally pace about a verse a night. Tonight, we'll get through five. Should be here a few hours, so it should be a lot of fun. Verse 12. Uh, just kidding, just two hours. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, verse 13. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. As you read through this, you should instantly be excited by the several interesting facets of this passage. Let's begin with beloved. Everyone say beloved with me. It's a term of endearment. Peter's used it once before as a transitional statement, okay, in chapter 2. This is used as, yes, a term of endearment. As a pastor looks out to his congregation and calls them dear friends and loves them and brings them into some difficult content. But he's also transitioning this into his final phase of 1 Peter. We're only going to be in it another month. There's only uh, a few verses left to go. And this is his final challenge to these Christians who are being persecuted in great extent. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now, back earlier in chapter 4, we dealt with this word surprised. But it was in a completely different context. Peter said, the world is surprised when you don't plunge into the same pit of debauchery as they do. Well, this is completely different. He says the world is not surprised, but rather you do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Let's leave surprised and move to fiery because we all like a little fire around the 4th of July. Amen? Anyone? Just me. All right. Fiery implies this. It implies a furnace where metals are burned. All throughout the scripture, there's this constant reoccurring theme of refiner's fire. In uh, ancient times and still today, when you want to refine a metal, you get it really hot. Again, this is 
I, I'm not into this. I'm just explaining information that I've learned. So don't look at me as some like gold master, which is probably the wrong term, right? But you, you refine fire. You put the metal in a deep, intense fire. And then what happens is on the surface rises this substance called dross. Dross is waste. A dross is meaningless. Dross is the piece of refining that they take and wipe off the top, and it leaves a purified form of the metal. So look at this. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to what? To test you. All the while, Peter has been challenging his readers in the understanding of persecution, and now he adds tremendous purpose to the suffering. He says, God is allowing it in his deep sovereign plan to weed out the dross from your life to be a purified form of your faith left in the form of a test. Struggle with that question a lot this week. Does God test us? How does he test us? Then I was reminded of uh, Genesis chapter 22 where in the very first verse of Genesis 22 the scripture says that God testing Abraham called Abraham to take his son and sacrifice him on an altar. God tests to prove genuine, real, authentic faith like that of a refiner's fire. And so what Peter says, do not be surprised when you undergo this kind of trial and testing because the blessing is proven faith. Let me say it this way. If we are surprised at trial, then we lessen the significance of God's sovereignty. We lessen the blow that God has a deep plan in the pain. There's this understanding in our culture that somehow Christianity and pain are disjointed. But a true understanding of the scripture knows that they're adjoined at the hip as evidenced by the cross, amen? So if we are not surprised, then we give a better understanding to the sovereignty of God working out. I do a lot of marriage counseling, and I married 12 couples last year. I have one actually coming up this weekend. Looking forward to it. Autumn and Kellen here in our body should be a lot of fun. When I do marriage counseling, though, one of the keys of marriage counseling is prepping a couple for some of the surprises that are coming, right? I mean, it's like getting them ready so that when some things happen, it, they're not completely taken aback by it, right? Like, you know, I, had, I was a, a virgin when my wife and I got married. I'm not talking about sex now, but I didn't know, you know, that women didn't have great b- breath and didn't all the time wear makeup. And, you know, I, like I didn't know these things. And so, like, when we go through marriage counseling, a piece of it is just prepping couples for not being surprised, it was a benefit for me to know that my grandfather was going to die of cancer before he actually did. He was diagnosed the second time with prostate cancer, and the second time uh, the doctor said that he will die, pending a miracle. By not being surprised, it gave me time to prepare. You all have the blessing now of hearing the trial, the pain, it's coming. And Peter did that exact same thing with his readers. Look, don't, it's coming. Don't be surprised. And the blessing is, is it will reveal a proven faith that in trial, turmoil, chaos, and even death, the true Christians will be standing saying God is good. Are you with me, church? Now, 
This is all setting up something very beautiful. He goes on to say this. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Rather, we sit back and know the cost of our faith. You see, Peter heard Jesus teach something. Jesus was talking about the cost of discipleship, and he said this in battle form. He said, if you were going to go to war, uh, wouldn't you, like, gauge how many other soldiers the other squadron have, right? Is that the right battalion? What's the army? Whatever, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you know their artillery, for, artillery force? Wouldn't you know what they were? Wouldn't you know the bombs that they have? Wouldn't you gauge that instead of just walking in blindly? The whole picture that Christ is trying to portray is you must gauge the cost of what it means to follow me so that when you do follow me, nothing surprises you. And Jesus over and over and over in the scriptures says the cost is everything. So we can't be surprised when the persecution, trial, and anything else comes. It comes, we sit back and say God is sovereign, and we rest and trust in him. Are you with me, church? Now, look at this in verse 13. Crazy, crazy verse. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, this put me on a tailspin, and I'm going to bring you into it. Sorry, how about this? Sharing in the sufferings of Christ. I started to think mentally. Okay, in what ways did Christ suffer? Well, there are a few obvious things that instantly come to mind. But I quickly realized that I have a lot of assumptions about how Christ suffered in the Gospels. The amazing thing is we have the word, and with a little bit of research, we can see every way that Christ suffered. Those of you that know me well, you know I like lists and, chrono- and chronological things and, and making and painting the whole map. So what I want to do for you, and I'm only doing this because the revelation is so profound, I'm going to show you every single time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus suffers, every single time. There's 16, and we're going to do one from Matthew 2 just for fun, all right? We're going to put them all on the screen. We're going to sit back from them, and we're going to see the power of what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. We together? So what I've done here is I'm going to, I'm going to put up the verses on the left, and then we'll look at the context on the right in the case that you want to write these verses down. The first is from Matthew chapter 1, verse 13. Don't you love those boxes? So creative and artsy, right? Well, Jesus comes into the world... Um, He's born, and instantly Herod wants to kill him. Uh, I chose Matthew here because Luke doesn't record this. The reason why we're going to go through Luke is Luke writes to a Gentile. Well, why is that significant? It's significant because it's very important for a Gentile to understand that the Jews were significant in his death, their own people, proving that he was, in fact, a God of Jews and Gentiles. Are you with me? All right? So he comes into the world, and Herod wants to kill him. Next verse. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, uh, his hometown desires to throw him off a cliff. This is a great way to start your ministry, right? He he comes in, and uh, he's just done some miracles in Capernaum. Listen to this. Interesting. Just done some miracles in Capernaum. And the reason why they they want to throw him off a cliff is because he's not going to do the same miracles he just did in Capernaum to show them that he doesn't need to to be the son of God. In fact, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, in the days of Elijah, um, there were tons of lepers, but God only healed one, and that was a widow. Then he says, in the days of Elisha, ton of lepers, God only healed one, Naaman. Don't have time to go into those stories, but 
his hometown and wants to throw him off of a cliff. Good luck with that. Next, Luke 5, 17. Um, this is a famous story. Uh, the, the people bring this paralytic and they lower him down through the roof. And Jesus says to the man, uh, your sins are forgiven. Very interesting passage, and look what happens. The scribes and the Pharisees think that what he's doing is blasphemy. He, they're just thinking it. And the scripture says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, calls them to the table, right? So Jesus is ridiculed not just by word at times, but by thought. And because he is so crafty and God of the universe, he's able to tap in. Amazing. Next verse, Luke five twenty-seven. He calls Levi a tax collector to come follow him. And look what happens. The Pharisees and the scribes say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Again, never before had I ever gone through the scripture verse by verse like this and seen every single time. And you'll start to see a pattern that I had never realized. Next verse. Luke 6, 1. The disciples are plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Right? One of my favorite uh, Sabbathan stories. They're, they're plucking grains of head. And the Pharisees come and they're asking Jesus, like, why do your disciples do what is unlawful? They keep battling how his disciples are breaking religious rules. Next verse. Luke 6, 6, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, right? And look what happens. The Pharisees are filled with, the scripture says, fury. And within it, they discuss what they might do with Jesus. This is the beginning of the indication that they truly desire to kill him. Next verse. Luke 7, uh, 36, a woman who is a, a considered a sinner, in quotation marks in the scriptures, listen, brings in this alabaster jar of perfume, and she pours it on Jesus. And then she begins to weep over the feet of Christ. One of the most beautiful pictures in all the gospel. And then she begins to wipe her tears off with her hair. But the uh, Pharisees that were there say, if this man were a prophet, he would know she is a sinner, chastising his ability to discern right from wrong, sinner from not sinner. Next verse. Luke 9.51. A Samaritan village, which Brandon already talked about tonight, Uh, rejects Jesus because his face is set to Jerusalem. Well, the Samaritans believed that Jerusalem wasn't necessarily a place of worship. So Jesus comes into a village. The whole village rejects him because his face is set to Jerusalem. Why? To go there and die. Next verse. Luke 11, 14. After casting out a demon, he's accused. And this is one of the most ironic times in Scripture. We taught through Luke, and I remember teaching this. He casts out a demon, and they say, you cast out demons by Beelzebub, who is a demon. How does that even make sense? They're accusing him of casting out a demon, casting out the one who is literally possessed by the one. doesn't even make sense, but they chastise him anyway because they're morons. Next, 11.53 says this. After Jesus calls the Pharisees and scribes to the table, in other words, Jesus in this passage, and I just put the beginning of each story, he calls them out. And they begin to press him hard. They, they want to know what's going on. They're trying to catch him in something. And, and the scripture says that they lie in wait, waiting to uh, see what he's going to do next. Next verse, Luke 13. Jesus heals a woman who had a spirit that didn't allow her to straighten up. She had this spirit for 18 years. Jesus heals her. Look at this. And the synagogue leader just, just tears into him, is, is chastising Jesus again, for healing on the Sabbath. And yet Jesus had mercy on this woman who couldn't stand up straight for 18 years. Next slide. 
Uh, this was nice of the Pharisees. They show up and tell Jesus that Herod wants to kill him. Um, this is about midway through his ministry. How would you take that? Hey, by the way, just in case you didn't know, uh, not only are we um, kind of, you know, amassing to try to kill you, also, by the way, Herod still wants to kill you too. High fives all around. Next verse. Luke sixteen fourteen. After teaching the parable of the dishonest manager, the Pharisees ridiculed him because they were lovers of money. So he's, he uses a parable, chast, or calls to the table the Pharisees, and then in their defensiveness, because they're lovers, lovers of money, they go at Christ. Next slide, Luke 19, 1. When they saw Jesus going to be with Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man, right? Wee little man was he, what a great little man he was, right? They, in quotation marks, Scripture doesn't say who, but we can take some guesses. They look at Jesus and, and they begin to grumble, the Scripture says. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Crazy significant. We'll get to the realization here in a second. Luke 19, 47. The chief priests, uh, the scribes, and scribes were seeking to destroy him. Next, in Luke uh, chapter 20, I believe. 20 verse 19, after teaching the parable of the wicked tenants, the scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. And minus the cross, this is the last one in Luke 22, the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to put him to death. Okay, literally what you've just seen is every single time that Jesus chastised, ridiculed, or suffers in the gospel of Luke. Luke has the most. Now, at Luke 22 begins the cross and everything after, but you've just seen every single one. Now, we step back and we make four observations, okay? Put these up for me. Put the first one up. Jesus was insulted, ridiculed, and he suffered when he first, this is, this is the realization, was a threat to the powers that be. When you sit back and you look at all of those holistically like I did on a piece of paper, he suffered when he was a threat to the powers that be. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious rulers. He suffered when he threatened their way of life, their power, who they were. Next, he was ridiculed and he suffered when he proclaimed and taught hard truth. Okay, several of those of the 17 were this. He challenges the Pharisees, he's go, he goes at them, and they get defensive because it's hard truth. Are you with me? Next one keeps undergoing chastisement when he breaks religious rules. And I add self-imposed here because the Pharisees just added this, this barrage of self-imposed rules. Now, listen. These three I could have come up with on my own. If I sat back and someone were to ask me, okay, when were the times that Jesus was, when Jesus was ridiculed or suffered the most in the gospel, these would have been my answers. The problem is, None of these three, including his claims to be the Son of God, is the most that he suffers in the gospel. When he suffers the most in the gospel of Luke, crazy is number four. When he ministered, healed, or spent time with who the world would consider worthless or a waste of time. The number one reason in the gospel of Luke when Jesus suffers, is ridiculed, or is chastised, is when he is hanging with folks who the world would say is a complete waste. Now, isn't that interesting? When you step back from that, now we have a clear gauge of what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. To share in the sufferings of Christ means, for righteousness' sake, when we threaten humbly the powers that be, 
and were ridiculed or chastised because of it, what does Peter say to do? Rejoice, because you share in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice in it. This is how Jesus suffered. There's no more ambiguity. We know it. We saw it. We just did the research. Secondly, when we humbly proclaim hard truth, and because of that hard truth, it will cause others to get angry, defensive, We rejoice because we share in the sufferings of Christ. This, for me in particular, has happened many times in my life. Though trying to be humble in my approach, because of a hardcore, true gospel message, there have been those who have disagreed and and verbalized that disagreement. Thirdly, when we break self-imposed religious rules of our culture, and there are many, that you earn your salvation, that by sitting in these pews it means something, significant in, your, in the scheme of eternity, it means nothing. You're here to grow and learn and worship and worship the king, but it doesn't guarantee your salvation by sitting in a pew, which many believe in our culture. When we break those self-imposed religious rules and we suffer because of it, then guess what? We rejoice. Now, the most significant. This one has messed me up. The world says about the homeless... Why would you even care about the disenfranchised and the homeless? They just need to get a job. Have you ever heard this? This is suffering for loving those who are perceived helpless. Um, I've heard ridicule for how much we care for single moms. And you know what the ridicule is? They should have married or gotten with a better man. Rejoice. You're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. When Christ walked into the home of Zacchaeus, when the woman with an an alabaster jar poured her perfume on his feet in a humble act, and he hung there, though she was a sinner, guess what? Through the chastisement, you share in the sufferings of Christ. The things that we're participating in by loving this city mesh with the biggest reason that Christ suffered in the gospel. And now this text becomes relevant. Do you see me? Do you understand this? What seems so disconnect, because we're not going to be on a candelabra of an emperor, now all of a sudden we sit back and we say that true faith and persecution because of it, we can now rejoice because we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And there is no doubt, if you want to test whether or not you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ, there is your litmus test. That's how he suffered. Those are all four ways. There's no other way. Those are it right there. Overarching, he may claims to be the son of God. Yes, that's ultimately a big piece of what killed him. But remember, it was God that put him on the cross. It was a Jew in form, but it was God. The scripture says in Isaiah that it was the will of God to to kill Christ, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Are you with me, church? Powerful, powerful stuff. All of a sudden, this text becomes incredibly relevant for you and I. And then he says this in the middle of verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's the picture. You won't suffer unless you really care. One of the biggest um, arguments for the reality of the gospel that I always say 
is 10 of 11 of the disciples were killed because of their faith after the resurrection of Christ. They wouldn't suffer if they didn't really believe. And that's the same for you and I. So it begs the question, doesn't it? Is our faith being tested and proven and refined in a furnace through suffering in such a way that your faith is proven genuine because you're unafraid of ridicule in the name of love? It's really easy to ride on the wings of others in our faith. But the true cost of discipleship says it's all or nothing because of the grace of Christ period. The true cost of discipleship then is looking at this list and not being seekers of suffering, right? Hear this. Okay, we're not like busting out these doors with a give me suffering t-shirt, but at the same time, we're not surprised when it comes because why? We're living like Jesus. Look at this, look at this in uh, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Here's the concept. I've shared this before. I often have three-second moments. Anyone else? Let me explain what they are. You're like, what are you, shut up, what are you talking about, right? Uh, A three-second moment, listen, is like some of these crazy thoughts that I get in my head. Even though I would never act on them, I like think about them. You guys have these? You think to yourself, if I were to do this right now, this would be really crazy. One of the most significant that I remember is Bob Costas. You guys know Bob? Bob was speaking at McKendry, where I went to college, and uh, there were like 3,000 people in the crowd. And I, I get these all the time, seriously. Like if I had a journal of all my three-second moments. Anyway, um, <laughs> and I'm sitting there in the crowd, and I, I remember this like it was the light of day. I, was, I, I sat there and I thought to myself, Bob Costas was up there speaking, a bunch of people, the president of my college, everyone was there. If I stood up right now, and just like went crazy on Bob Costas. Like if I just, you know, if I just cussed him up and down and just went crazy, like I would ruin everything. I was a campus ministry leader. I was a youth pastor. I was a football player. And in three seconds, if I just stood up right now and just went crazy on Bob Costas, I would be arrested and it would all be over. Like everything I worked for, you know? The crazy thing is, you guys get these three-second moments too sometimes? You have one right now? You're like thinking about leaving, right? Please don't, right? Listen. If I would have stood up and, and done that, I represent campus ministries. And so I would then be the crazy guy from campus ministries that went off on Bob Costas. You know? I was a football player. The newspaper would read, McKendry football player goes crazy on Bob Costas. Right? I, I was a youth pastor. I would have been the United Methodist youth pastor. We'll talk about that later. United Methodist youth pastor. Right? went off on Bob Costas. I represent all of these things. Do you understand verse 14? Look at this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because you do not represent yourself. Scripture says in, in Corinthians that we were, we were bought at a price that were not our own, that were owned and cherished by him. Another place in Scripture uh, says that we are ambassadors of Christ, as though he were making his appeal through us. We do not represent ourselves in suffering. 
And so the reason why we rejoice, the reason why we celebrate, the reason why we're even blessed, as Jesus shared in the Beatitudes, is because we represent him. And how do we represent him? We live like him. And when we live like Jesus, here is the guarantee. You will suffer. Because you'll be loving the unlovable, helping those who the world has passed by on. You will be standing for truth humbly. You will be exemplifying the life of Christ. And when you exemplify Christ, what did Jesus say? They hated me and they'll hate you. Remember this teaching. Why? It's because you live like that and there's tension with the world. This text finally becomes relevant for you and I in a powerful way and begs, is this really what we're embodying? Are we truly embodying the life of Christ or just the practice of religion? Are we just making ourselves feel good by coming together and participating in some semblance of community and once in a while celebrating and worshiping and serving or are we truly representing Jesus as though he were making his appeal through us? We represent that name. And so when we're insulted, we rejoice because it's him we represent. Now a knock on Facebook and Twitter, verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief. You're curious where this is going. Or an evildoer or as a meddler. I'm going to bank on the fact that most of you here won't be a murderer. We're praying for that. Uh, Some of you may be a thief in here and certainly an evildoer. But I think many of you are a meddler. Interesting word. Here's what it means. It means getting in everyone's business. All right? That's what a meddler is. In my humble opinion, many of you know that I have fought the man, speaking of, right? And I don't own Facebook and Twitter, though I do not think that they're uh, own. I don't use them, even though I don't think they're inherently evil. But the reason why I don't, just so all of you know and you can stop asking me, is because I don't want to be constantly in everyone's business. It's such, a, it's such a challenge. And I see this often in ministry that pastors just become self-proclamating in Twitter and Facebook. It's all about how great their church is and whatever. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be in everyone else's business all the time. I want to rejoice with you in relationship but I don't want to just dive in so that we're always figuring out different ways that we can gossip one another by meddling. The the point here is, if you meddle, if you're a meddler, I'm not sure if that's the right way to say it, if you're a meddler and you suffer, no point. Because many of you will do this. Many of you will meddle into people's affairs. Again, we're going with that word. Many of you will get all up in people's affairs, and then they'll, they'll call you to task because of some gossip, and then you'll throw down the God card, Right? So let me give you an example. Uh, You see on Facebook or Twitter, you know, that so-and-so's relationship broke up. You know, how how it does on Facebook, right? I'm in a relationship and hearts and all kinds of flowers, whatever. I don't know, right? And then then you see that they break up. Well, you didn't see that they got back together an hour later. But you went ahead and, you know, blasted out some note to your friends. Hey, did you hear so-and-so got... And then this person whose Facebook it was challenges you because... You broadcasted it when they actually got back together an hour later. And then you're like, yeah, but, but God said you shouldn't be in that relationship anyway, right? That relationship is, it's a horrible relationship. And you just, you get in people's affairs in a sinful way. And then you throw the God card. 
And then when they challenge you on it, you're like, I'm rejoicing because I'm suffering like Jesus, you know? You're like, yes, bring on the suffering of Christ. That is not the picture here. He says, don't suffer, don't suffer as a thief or a meddler or a crook or a murderer. Suffer because you bear the name of Christ. And can we end with a beautiful verse here, 16? All five verses in one night. Yet if anyone suffers as a what? As a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You'd be surprised to note the word Christian shows up in the Bible. Any guesses? Three. Twice in Acts and here in First Peter. Uh, the early disciples in Antioch are called disciples, and later King Agrippa in Acts 26 asks Paul to persuade him to be a Christian. Those are the other two. Huge. In this moment, as he writes to people who are dying because of their faith, do you understand the significance? He says you have two options with the name of Jesus. You either curse it or you cherish it. You challenge it or you bear it. He says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The term Christian literally means like Christ. Someone who has counted the cost and someone who has said, living like Jesus, though trial and pain and suffering are a guarantee. I will not be ashamed of the name of Christ because I recognize it as my only hope. A Christian is someone who believes that the cross means something. A Christian is someone who believes that when Jesus came and lived perfectly and when he bled on a cross, that that blood literally means that you and I can be forgiven. That's what a Christian believes. A Christian believes that the tomb was empty. A Christian, a true follower of Christ. I know that word's diluted in our culture, but that's what a Christian is. A Christian believes, listen, that all of Scripture was waiting on Jesus to come. In fact, all of Scripture was written exemplifying when Jesus would come. A Christian believes that living like Christ is the only way. A Christian believes that these are the things that are worth standing for. A Christian believes that they are in desperate need of grace that they have no way of earning it, they have no way of stepping closer to Christ, outside of Christ doing it for them. A Christian believes that Jesus is the only one worthy to be praised. A Christian believes that in this culture, it's time to take a stand for true belief in humility. A Christian believes that the widows are worthy of our attention and love, that the homeless should, should yearn our love. That's what a Christian believes. A Christian believes that this is the inherent word of God. This is true, it's inerrant, it's breathed by God, and its words are life-giving. That's what a Christian believes. A Christian who died at the hands of King Nero, Emperor Nero, should be no different than the Christian that sits in this room now. And yet, why are we disconnected? Why is there a seemingly difference in our passion and zeal for the Lord Jesus? It seems like Christian used to mean something, and now it's just whistled its way down to 
some term that we call the church people. I don't want to be just a church person. Anyone else? I want to bear the name of Christ in such a way that I'm not ashamed of it. That when I'm insulted because of it, I know I represent the king of the universe. And so I'll keep loving the widow, and I'll keep loving the homeless, and I'll keep taking a stand, and I'll keep having a tough gospel message no matter what ridicule may come. And when the insults do come, I'll rejoice because I'm a Christian. I'm Christ-like only by his grace. That's a Christian church. Nothing less and nothing more. And so when Peter writes this profound teaching on what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ, he's assuming that his readers are yearning to be like Jesus. Is that your deepest yearning? Or is it just that you give off the appearance that you're a Christian? Is the deepest sense of your heart to truly be more like who he is? To personally yearn to be like Christ? Or is it just that you would give the appearance of Christ's likeness so a man would congratulate your holiness? A Christian is one who believes they have nothing else outside of Christ. And so Peter ends with these words. But let him glorify him in that name. A Christian says, to God be the glory, understanding that pain will come, and in his sovereignty I see its divine purpose. Christian is somebody who for thousands of years has gathered around a meal and the meal representing the power of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus, when he was with his disciples, revealing true Christianity, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And what he was saying is, I'm going to show you what Christianity is because I have embodied it. And then he takes the cup. Can you just for a second imagine the scene of the cross? It's not some fictional fairy tale. It was real. Its whole experience and the whole surrounding, very real. A God-man with a crown of thorns and open wounds all over his back and nails in his wrists and ankles. It was a real scene. And before he endured all of that, with his disciples. He held up the cup and he said, this is the blood of my new covenant which I will give for you. And so when you eat this meal and when you eat this bread and drink of this cup, do this in remembrance of me. Take this and drink and understand the sacrifice. 
Church, a Christian has counted the cost. They know it costs everything, and a Christian stands up in confidence, not in and of themselves, but in the gospel, and says, I will not be ashamed. If you're here tonight, and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you with this. There's nothing that you could have done that could deny you the cross at this point. His grace is sufficient for all of your wrongdoings, all of your sin, all of your debauchery, all of your drunkenness, all of your sexual escapades, all of it. His grace is sufficient for it. And so if you're not a follower of Christ tonight, could I ask you this? As we as Christians take this meal, because this meal is for followers of Jesus, could you wrestle with the reality of a great God whose sacrifice is our every and only hope. And if after tonight you're just like, I want to know more about Jesus and what it means to be a Christian, I would love to chat with you. And so church tonight, we respond, having counted the cost, ready to suffer, because we're like Christ. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your scriptures, which do not lie. I thank you that your ministry to the helpless and the hurting and the confused gives us a tremendous example of what it really means to live like you and endure suffering. God, will you stir our affections now for you? Would you grow our love of you? Would you shake us up, God, in such a way that would yearn just to not be playing Christianity, but rather claiming victory in the power of bearing your name and representing you as an ambassador? God, we love you. And no matter what pain or trial, we receive it as your refining will. Church, after having repented, respond by sharing in the Lord's Supper together.